This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. Um, my name is uh, Deborah Rossborn. <laughs> well played. Good to see y'all this morning. Uh, really, my name is Aaron Thomas. I am the youth pastor here. Uh, but it is good to, to be gathered with all of you this morning. Um, I, <clears throat> Valentine's Day is a weird thing for me because, uh, you know, like we don't really love Valentine's Day in general. I feel like most people recognize that it's just kind of a made up thing, but I think it's good to celebrate. Uh, and when every year around Valentine's Day, it makes me think about my relationship with my wife. So we've, uh, we've been together since the 20th century. Wow. Uh, we started dating in high school in the fall of 1999, all the way back then. Uh, and we, we were teenagers uh, in, in high school. As much as we could as teenagers, we, we loved one another. Uh, Jenna has always had more sense than me, uh, and she understood better than I did at that time that the love we had for each other then was not quite the same as the love that keeps a man and a woman committed to one another through all the hardships of life. Uh, but as much as we could, we, we cared about one another uh, in, in that season. Uh, so we dated through high school, and then she was a year ahead of me in school. So when she graduated, she went off to college at UNC Chapel Hill. Sorry, Duke fans. Um, and so we, we were going to spend that. We entered into this long-distance sort of phase of our relationship. And this was before we could just call and talk to each other. This was when you could talk for free on your cell phone after 9 o'clock and on the weekends. So we'd wait till 9 p.m., and that's when we call each other. We didn't want to pay for text messages, so we mostly just didn't communicate until after 9 p.m. and then on the weekends. Uh, it was a weird time of life. So uh, anyways, we're in that long-distance phase of our relationship, and I remember very vividly my friends, my teachers, people who knew us telling me, Aaron, this isn't worth it. It's not worth it. Like, this long-distance thing is not going to work out. She's going to be at college. She's going to meet some dude who looks better than you and is smarter than you, and it just ain't going to work. And then you're going to be heartbroken. You guys might as well go ahead and break up. And we heard that many times. She heard that. I heard that. Uh, and it was pretty exhausting uh, to, to listen to that over and over again, people trying to convince us that, that it wasn't going to work out. Uh, and I had to fight my own thoughts in that time because I would call her at, after 9 o'clock, and she would tell me about all the things she was able to do that day or the people she was going to hang out with. There would be dudes that she's hanging out with in this group or whatever. And I, I had to fight my own thoughts through that, uh, the, the worries that I had that she was going to meet somebody. And, and eventually she did. She met somebody she was interested in. Actually, both of us at different times in college met people that we thought we may be interested in pursuing. And it was hard and awkward. And it meant we, we talked to each other about it. Uh, and then we would, like, we had conversations with these people uh, and ultimately decided that we wanted to fight for our relationship and stay together. And that was, like, I could say that matter-of-factly, but that was really difficult for both of us to have to tell one another, I have these feelings, and this is hard for me. And so you have to deal with that sort of heartbreak and having that conversation. And then you go have this conversation with this other person and realize this isn't actually the person I want to be with. So then you have to, like, be like, ah, these feelings I thought I had, I don't really have, and I actually want to be with the person I was with originally. It's just difficult. It's gut-wrenching conversation. Um, it, was, it was a painful process. And honestly, long distance is hard because you spend all this time apart and like 
absence makes the heart grow fonder is a phrase, but there's also an out of sight, out of mind kind of thing where because we weren't spending time in one another's presence, then someone else starts to look more intriguing or whatever. Uh, and it was, it was difficult to navigate that. And I remember very vividly when I was in Boone, I was going to school up there. Uh, Jenna was still in Chapel Hill. It's like a two and a half hour drive between us. And it was in one of these periods where there was uncertainty about whether or not we were going to stay together in our relationship. Uh, and I was talking to my dad. I was pacing around in the parking lot of my apartment complex. And I remember saying, I just wish I could go see her. And he did not hesitate. And he said, go. And I was, I was listening to someone who, I, at that point, my parents had been married nearly 30 years. And I had watched my dad love, love my mom really well. And so when he told me to go, I was like, I'm going. I got off the phone with him. I got in my Jeep, and I drove to Chapel Hill. And I want to be clear that we weren't in a fight. It wasn't that we were angry with one another. It wasn't that I'd done something wrong, and I was, she had told me to go away, and I was forcing myself into a space that I'd been asked to leave. It wasn't one of those. There was just uncertainty about, about our relationship. Uh, and so I wanted to physically lay my eyes on the woman that I loved so that we could figure out if we really did want to stay committed to one another. Uh, and praise God, we, we did. Uh, we wanted to stay together, and we're still together, and it's awesome. Some things are, are worth fighting for. Uh, and there were all, thing, all kinds of things to fight in that season, like the people who were telling us we need to break up with each other, and it's not going to work out. But sometimes we had to fight our own thoughts and our own frustrations with one another. Uh, and honestly, we still have to fight those things. And we were fighting this morning <laughs> about Valentine's Day. Because I stupidly uh, have not learned in 15 years of marriage that my wife, what she, just, what she wants from me is for me to just be intentional. Jenna doesn't care about Valentine's Day, but she wants me to be intentional just in general in life. So when I said, hey, uh, you know, Valentine's Day is Wednesday. I work Wednesday night with students. We have stuff going on on the weekend. And I just said, hey, when do you want to celebrate Valentine's Day? And what that sounded like to her was like, I was not being intentional. I didn't care. And so then it's, we started like bickering a little bit and then it escalated and it wasn't fun. Uh, and now I'm here talking about it. I got her approval before I talked about it. Uh, <laughs> And, and I was the one in wrong there. <laughs> I don't know what she's whispering right now, but it sounds funny. Uh, anyways, when we were together, we could see clearly what it was that we were fighting for. We could see our relationship clearly, and we, we wanted to fight for that relationship. And Jude wrote this letter to a group of believers because he wants them to see clearly what they believe, and he wants them to see that it's worth fighting for. We talked last week uh, as we opened up the book Jude in the first two verses. He gives this address to the people he's writing to, and it, we, we talked about who we are in Christ as believers because we are bought, we are called, we are loved, and we are kept by God. And that's true of every single believer in Jesus. But we don't always act like that. We don't always keep our eyes on Jesus as our first love. We don't always remember that our identity is first in him. And then when we lose focus, we get pulled away to other things. Other things start to look more enticing. Like we start putting our identity in relationships or work or sports or games or social media, politics, whatever. We need to remember who we are so that our identity isn't misplaced. And we need to remember who we are so that we're not pulled away by some distortion or attack on the gospel. 
And when I say gospel, I want to clarify what we're talking about. Because in the church, when we talk about the gospel, uh, we're usually referring to one of two things. One is the gospels with a capital G. Uh, gospels, those are the four books that start off the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are the gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life and mystery on earth. Uh, but then other times when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the good news. That's what that word means, it's good news. We're talking about the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for sinners. To, to save them and bring them into a relationship with God. That's what we're talking about when we say the gospel. So when we defend the gospel, we are defending that good news. And most of us gathered here today believe that. We praise God for your faith. And there's some of you that are yet to believe that. And we pray that, that you would believe that today or move closer to a place of belief today. We want to make sure that we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Clearly, because there are many who use the name of Jesus to then turn and, and present some distortion or a personal agenda or something else that's messed up to us. And during our time today, I hope that we get to a place of understanding where, where we understand because of the many distortions of the gospel, believers must know and defend the Christ-exalting faith that has been passed down. That's our, our main point from today. Because of the many distortions of the gospel... Believers must know and defend the Christ-exalting faith that has been passed down. So, if you haven't already opened up your Bible to the book of Jude, I encourage you to do that. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some under the chairs around you. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, so, if you want to ask about that, myself or Pastor Mike or someone else gathered here, we, we believe that the gospel or the, the Bible, God's Word, has everything in it necessary for you to come to faith in Jesus and it also has instruction on how to live like him and with him and follow him. And there is no better gift that we could give you than the word of God. So if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we want you to have it. But we're in the book of Jude. We're just going to look at verses 3 and 4 together today. So let's read those now. Verse 3 says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. So this is now where the letter opens up. Verses 1 and 2 are the, the address who he's talking to. And now Jude is opening up to share his purpose and reason for writing. And he starts in verse 3 by calling people, Dear friends. And there are going to be some hard things that Jude says in this book, in this, this short letter. Uh, we're going to get into those hard things next week. But we want to remember that Jude is writing to people that he loves. And we live in a cultural moment where we're told that loving someone means accepting them as they are. And y'all, that is not true. Accept them, yes, as human beings worthy of love because they, like you, have been made in the image of God. But accepting someone as they are and with all of their faults is not what it means to love. You can ask any parent that. If you love your kids, you do not accept all of their behavior as it is. Some of you know people and have hung out with people who never offer correction to their children. And it's like hanging out with the monkeys from the Wizard of Oz. You know, minus the wings, I guess. Um, <laughs> sometimes with the wings, yeah. Uh, but... If we love someone, we want to have, as Pastor Mike shared, the, the true and right picture of love. Sometimes loving someone means confronting them 
means challenging them. And we want to do that graciously, not matter-of-factly, not slapping them across the face, but graciously. Like when they put their toilet paper on backwards. <laughs> if your friends do the under thing, don't do that. Somebody came to my house and did that after I mentioned it last week. Anyway, it's a total joke. <laughs> I wasn't going to name her, but it, is. it was Allison Brooks <laughs> breaking my heart. But more seriously, if you notice that your friend, someone you love and care about, every time they get stressed out, they have to have a drink. They, they run to alcohol to, to calm themselves down or to cope with their problems. If you notice that happening, then as their friend, because you love them, then you have that difficult conversation with them. And it's probably going to go badly, but it's worth having that conversation because that is a necessary correction because you love them. Or if you have a friend or a coworker, somebody that you work alongside and you come to find out that they've been stealing things from work. Well, I work here. I put in my time. I can have this stuff. Or maybe they find a way to like fudge their, their we don't have physical time cards. I worked one, one summer at a place with a physical time card with a machine that chunk, chunk, that thing. I know it's not a thing anymore, but you can log in, start the time clock, and not actually be working or whatever if you're working from home. If you're finding out your friends are cheating the company, if you love them, you'll talk to them about that lack of integrity and how it's not cool for them to be cheating in that way. Or if your married, married buddy is talking about the porn that he watched recently, if you love him and you love his marriage, you are going to call him out for that and tell him about the poison that he's messing with and how it's corrupting his relationship with his wife, his relationship with the Lord, his relationship with women. Like, if we love people, we're not just going to accept all of their behavior. Sometimes we're going to call it out. Love doesn't mean that we approve of everything that someone does. Um, I've got this quote from Dallas Willard. He was an American philosopher and a, a leader in spiritual formation. He says, we have a terrible time understanding love because we confuse it with desire. Desire and love are two utterly different kinds of things. Not only is desire not love, it is often opposed to love. Right action is the act of love, regardless of the desires of anyone involved. Love means that we're willing to fight, even if we have to fight the person that we love. And what Jude wants his, his dear friends to fight for is their faith. He wants them to know what they believe. And I want you, we want you, we want one another to know what we believe. As he continues in verse 3, he says, Although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write. So now he's saying, I've got something different. I, ha I wanted to spend time just basking in God's amazing grace. But something else has happened, and now I've got to write this different letter than what I had planned. So, and as it continues in verse 3, he says, Now I'm writing, appealing to you to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Some translations say contend earnestly or earnestly contend. It's similar language that Paul gives us when he's describing athletes who strive towards a goal. It's an, an active and intentional pursuit and defense of our faith in Jesus. So when he says contend for the faith, He's referring to the whole of what we believe, all of what we believe. Not the act of faith, like believing in Jesus, but the, the whole of our collective faith and belief in Jesus. Defend the Christian faith. And this is the theme and the purpose of Jude's writing of this letter. He wants believers to fight. And when Paul wrote to Timothy, 
There were false teachers in Timothy's church who were telling people that they needed to accrue wealth, get more money for themselves, store up material possessions or material wealth. And in 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12, Paul challenges that as he's writing to Timothy, he says, but you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Contending for the faith is about both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is right belief, correct thinking, correct belief. Orthopraxy is correct action, right action, doing the right thing. And these things, this may feel unimportant to you. Maybe you're like glossing over like, I don't care. But if we don't have a firm grasp on these, on what we believe and how that's supposed to like play out in the actions of our lives, if we don't have a firm grasp on that, then we're going to be led astray by other things. He says to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. And we got to ask what this means exactly. And I, I've read a number of commentaries on this. Our scholar friends say, some of them say that Jude must be referring to like written, documented uh, sources at the time. But that seems unlikely based on when we think Jude wrote this letter. And it seems more likely that Jude is referring to the general belief in the resurrected Jesus and then his teachings that had been shared with the apostles who learned from him and then taught those to other believers along the way. The, the things passed down. In, in our faith. Uh, sometimes things get passed down that shouldn't be passed down. I wish I could find the source for this. I read this story one time about this woman who loved to cook. And she really liked to make pasta. And every time she made pasta, she would boil the water before she put the noodles in. And she would use a plate instead of the pot lid on the pot. And she did that because her mom always did that. And she learned to cook from her mom. And she was like, this is how we this is how you boil pasta water. A plate is a better lid than the lid itself. But then she started cooking for her friends. Her friends would be over when she's doing something. They're like, hey, why are you putting a plate on top of the pot? And she's like, well, because it works better. And they're like, but why? And she was like, I don't know why. So then she called her mom. I was like, hey, mom, so you know when you make pasta, you put a plate on top of the pot when you're boiling the water? Why do you, why do, you do that? And her mom said, oh, we lost the pot lid. Like. <laughs> She was doing this thing because she thought this is the right way to do it. But in reality, it was just her mom was just getting it done however she could. Some things get passed down and shouldn't be passed down. But our faith is not one of those things. Uh, Our faith has been delivered to the saints and then delivered to generation after generation after generation once and for all. And and this, this once and for all part, I think, is significant for two reasons. One being that our faith, so our belief in Jesus as the Son of God who conquered the grave and takes away the sin of the world, is a communal faith that we share with a long line of believers. It's not a new thing. It's an ancient truth that stretches centuries back to Jesus' time on earth and then continues centuries back to the beginning when God promised Eve that he was going to send one who would crush the head of the serpent who had deceived her. Our faith is, is a communal thing. And our faith is, the the second reason I think this is important is because our faith is not going to get some new tweak or new revelation. I think, um, I was talking to students this week on Wednesday night about random things we see on the internet 
because there'll be these things. People will be like, oh, did you know that God's word really says this? And it'll go into this deep explanation about the Greek and that this means this. And we spent some time looking at some of those videos and pulling them apart. And some of them are just utter nonsense. Somebody took time to make that video, to make all these claims. And then you get to the end of the video and they've spouted off a bunch of nonsense. But then like at the end of it, it's like they're not even compelling you to believe anything. They're just putting it out there. And it's because they know that we love having like secret knowledge. We love knowing something that other people, oh, did you know when Jesus said this, he really meant this other thing? Like we love having that secret knowledge. And so people play on that with us all the time. And so we want to remember that there is not some secret person on the internet that's going to give you this like magic thing that's all of a sudden going to unwrap all of Christianity for you. They are going to, it, the true faith, our faith has been given once for all to believers and then passed down to us. And you, you may learn new things, sorry, you may learn more and more about who God is. It may be new to you, but you are not going to learn things different about our faith than what's been written in the scriptures than what's been handed down from generation to generation to us now. We, we want to, to remember that because maybe on Saturday morning you have people knock on your door who come and they want to talk to you about their, our, our common faith. And I, I don't want to beat up on people, but Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, sometimes, depending on when you're talking to them, they'll, they'll talk like they're Christians and they just have this new and different understanding. And we've just got a corrupted version of the Bible. And their version is the new version and the right version, the corrected version. God is not going to give us this new thing. He's already given us the new thing. And it is here and we can cling to it. We need to study it. We need to know it. We need to spend time with it. And, and to be fair, throughout church history, the church hasn't believed the exact same things on every issue. We contextualize the gospel for our moment and where we're at, but our theology and our doctrine has remained the same. We may change beliefs about how to handle situations in different cultural contexts, but our, our faith is the same. The faith that the apostles had, the belief that they had about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the belief that they had about salvation, the belief that they had about all people being made in the image of God, and so on and so on, those things that they, sh they believed, we also believe. It's the same for us. It's been handed down once for all. You'll, yeah, sorry. I got really worked up there for a minute because this bothers me when, when I see people peddling things that aren't true. It brings us to a question. Do you know what you believe? And do you live it? Are you orthodox and orthopedic? Perhaps, I hate the way you say that, but uh, do you believe the right things and do you live the right way? Do you know why Jesus died? And do you actively fight against sin in your own life in all the forms, all the ways that it shows up? Do you know how to tell someone that they can be saved? And, and do you share it with people when you're given opportunities? Do you know what happens at the end of time? And do you hope for that so much that you don't freak out on people when they make your present life miserable by the, the choices they make or the things that they do? Believe the gospel. Keep growing in your knowledge of it. Read the Bible. Get in Sunday school. Listen to good preaching. Because of the many distortions of the gospel, believers must know and defend the Christ-exalting faith that has been passed down. We've got to know what we believe, and we have to defend it from corruption. 
And verse 4, Jude continues. He says, talking about some, he says, some people. For some people, and this isn't like the parking lot passive aggressive, some people, like when you're talking about somebody in front of them kind of way, and you're like, some people think that's not a big deal or whatever. Ain't that kind of passive aggressive, some people. Jude being, being straight with us, he's talking about some people who then came into the church and are corrupting the teachings of Jesus and the faith that's been handed down to this group of believers. And our scholar friends have a lot to say about who these people might be. Um, a lot of them think that there's, they're, they're early Gnostics. So Gnosticism as a belief had not fully formed at the time when Jude wrote this letter, but there are shades of Gnosticism in the things that he addresses. And the Gnostics believed that the physical world is corrupted and that it doesn't matter what we do with our physical bodies. That's one of the things they believe. That's not the whole of Gnosticism, but that's one of the things and seems to be what Jude is addressing. So the Gnostics would teach, or these people would teach, that it doesn't matter how we act and how we live as long as we have the right knowledge, the right belief. They cared about orthodoxy, they said, but their version of orthodox, their, their version of correct belief did not lead them to orthopraxy. Their version of correct belief did not lead them to right living. If, if someone's version of Christianity does not lead them and the people around them to love God and love people more, then it is not orthodox. It is not right. Someone can be an excellent speaker and communicator, but if, if you know them and they are a hateful human being, they treat their wife and their kids badly, they hold grudges against their neighbors, that, like, then you need to question the things that they are saying. Our beliefs in our head should line up with our, our actions in our hands and in our feet. And Jude continues in verse 4. He says that these people are designated for this judgment long ago. And this is a hard phrase to decipher what, what this means, designated for the judgment. Um, most scholars, or a lot of scholars, think that the judgment Jude is referring to is talking about the judgment that he's going to pronounce in the verses that we're going to look at next week. So he's saying because of their action, they, these people have been judged by God already, and, and we'll get into that judgment a little bit. And spoiler alert, none of those judgments are good. When we get into those next week, they're, they're all hard. God does not let people practice or promote evil without them being held accountable for it. And if he did, he would not be a good God. They may not see the consequences of their actions in this life, but they will be held accountable. Jude says that these people have come in by stealth. Undoubtedly, they're now leaders and teachers in the church, and they're believing things that, or they're teaching things that are false. They didn't come in the doors and say, hey, everybody, you guys are thinking wrong about this stuff. They came in like, hey, I'm one of you. And then over time, they revealed themselves to be false teachers as they were given more responsibility. They were, they were sneaky. They were very, very sneaky. Um... Our kids want to be sneaky. They, I don't know if anybody else's kids try to sneak up on them, but our kids do all the time. Uh, and Eva especially, I'm, I'll have to apologize to her for calling her out for this one day, I'm sure. But she wants so bad to be sneaky, and she's the least sneaky person on planet Earth. Um, she tries to scuttle across the floor like a mouse or something in the corner. But if you've seen Eva, she's just, a, she's just skin and bones. And our house is all hardwoods. So when she goes crawling across the floor, it sounds like somebody just hucked a bunch of hammers into the living room. You can spot her without even looking for her. You know, oh, Eva's sneaking. Uh, she's not. She's not sneaky. Um, and I, I think 
that the more you spend time in God's word, the firmer the grasp you have on our faith, on our shared faith, the easier it is for you to spot those who come in with a false message. And some of you are listening to false teachers who claim the name of Christ and then teach something different than the faith that has been handed down. And I, I don't think that it is always good and right for us to call out people specifically and name them. But there is one in particular who has a ton of influence in America, and his name is Joel Osteen. And he preaches from the scriptures. He uses the name of Jesus, but the version of the gospel that he presents is not the gospel from the scriptures. He has a beautiful smile great suits, much better dresser than me or Pastor Mike. Sorry, Mike. Uh, but he's preaching lies. And he's, that, his lies are pumped through our televisions, through the internet. And those lies span beyond just America. They're being preached in other countries. His, his, his nonsense gospel is being preached around the world. He's, he de-emphasizes sin and he misapplies God's promises to make it sound like God just wants to be good to you. And God does want to be good to you. But his goodness does not come in the form of a fat bank account, perfect health, and happiness. His goodness was fully displayed on a cross and in an empty tomb. We are sinful beings. We're created in God's image to know and love him, but we rejected him instead and as a result, there's brokenness in the world. There's death and separation from God forever. And we can't do anything about that to fix that problem on our own. And God sent Jesus, his own son, God in the flesh, into the world to rescue us from sin and death. He was crucified, though he was innocent. And he resurrected from the dead just like he said he would to give us forgiveness from our sin and to give us life in his name abundant life, full of joy that is rooted in God, both now and forever. Yes, God loves you. And you are a sinner in need of God's saving grace. He does not want you to stay the same. He wants you to grow in holiness and to become more and more like Jesus until you meet him face to face. We have to be sure that the voices we're listening to are preaching that message and no other. What Jude says about these people who are preaching false gospel is in verse 4, he calls them, he says, they are ungodly. If someone is telling you that the gospel of Jesus is about you getting more stuff and getting healthy, then they are lying to you. They are ungodly and godless because they're telling you that the gospel is about you. Instead of pointing you to the glory of God through the gospel, be careful who you listen to. Be careful what memes you read on the internet. Sometimes something sounds, oh, that's nice, and it mentions Jesus. And y'all, I've been deceived by people. I remember being a teenager and listening to like songs where somebody might say God, they would refer to God, or like the big man upstairs or something. There'd be some veiled reference to God, and I automatically be like, that person's a Christian. Because they said something about God. And so then when they started talking about women, or they started talking about money, or they started talking about whatever, I'm thinking, oh, this person's a Christian. So now I can listen to their Christian perspective on these other things. And I feel like it's obvious what the problem with that is. 
we got to be careful who it is that we're listening to. we got to be careful assuming that just because somebody uses God's name or even uses Jesus' name, that they're actually preaching the true gospel. Be careful what politicians and pastors you follow who tell you that Jesus wants to save America and establish a Christian country. Yeah, God wants America to be a nation full of believers, but he wants the whole world to be a world full of believers. God wants to save the whole world, not just us. He doesn't need a nation to save the world. He doesn't need a president to save the world. He doesn't need a Supreme Court to save the world. He needs his people to love him and obey him as they share the gospel of Jesus with the world around them. That's his design. That's plan A. That's what he wants for, for us and from us. Yes, vote. Yes, engage in local and national politics. But do not be deceived by those who come in by stealth and try to make the gospel about American politics. The gospel is political, but it is not partisan. Jesus is king. When we say Jesus is Lord, we are making a political statement. We are proclaiming that Jesus has authority over every single area of life and every single human being on the earth. That is a political statement. But donkeys and elephants have no claim on our hearts. That's right. God's people are citizens of heaven, just passing through this world on our way to him. So Jude calls out these false teachers again. He says that they are turning the grace of God into sensuality. Sensuality just means physical pleasure. Usually it means sexual pleasure, but it's physical pleasure. And the biggest error that Jude seems to be calling out in this church is something to do with sexual sin. These people, these leaders, false teachers, are undoubtedly coming in and telling people that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do sexually. It doesn't matter who you sleep with because your bodies are corrupt anyway. You might as well enjoy them while you have them. Some some version of that message is being promoted in this church, and Jude is confronting it. There are all kinds of people claiming Christ today who are saying similar things to us. That God doesn't really say much about sexual activity. That his word is unclear about it. And that's just not true. God's word teaches us that sex is meant for one man and one woman who are committed to one another in marriage. So that means that all sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. Whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, or whatever. Any sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. Looking at porn is sin. Lusting after someone in your mind is sin. And God cares about these things because when we sin sexually, we're damaging ourselves in a unique way. And let's look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is verses 12 through 18. Say, Paul, Paul quotes some, some common phrases among the people, and then he refutes those. So he says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord, raised up Jesus, and he will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Do you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the scripture says the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis there. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. 
When we sin sexually, we are harming ourselves and others, and we're also harming Christ. It wasn't just Jude dealing with issues of sensuality. It wasn't just Paul. This has been a problem since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. All people are broken sexually and in need of the gospel to correct their broken longings. We've got to defend the faith, and sometimes we have to defend it from ourselves. Because we want to believe lies. We want, Satan has always appealed to us through our desires. A kernel of truth is given to us and then it's twisted and distorted so that we'll believe a lie. We've got to defend the faith and sometimes we've got to defend it from ourselves. There are all kinds of ways that we make our faith about ourselves and about our own physical desires. And I've been guilty of this too. When we leave Sunday morning gatherings and we judge that time of gathering with other believers based on how we felt by the music that was played or the sermon that was preached. If it's about the way that we feel when we leave, then we're making this gathering about ourselves. And we're forgetting that what we're doing when we come here is reminding one another of who God is. We're gathering together to lift our voices and sing praises to him and then to be reminded or to learn new truths about who God is. Or we, we rebel against God when he doesn't give us what we want. Maybe you've listened to too many of those prosperity pastors who tell you that if you just claim it or believe it and pray for it and ask for it, that God will give it to you. And then God doesn't give it to you. So then you're mad. Why, God, why would I show up on Sunday morning? You, you're not doing anything for me. It's because we're making the gospel about us instead of seeing that it's about him. Or maybe we don't make an effort to stop sinning in our lives because we think, well, I'm going to heaven anyway. I know God doesn't want me to do this, but I believe the gospel. I've got the right knowledge. It doesn't really matter how I act and how I believe. I don't really have to fix everything. And we treat the gospel as if it is a train ticket to heaven rather than a pronouncement of King Jesus' authority over all of life, including our own. I think more often what this looks like is us just not trying to identify the ways we're sinning. We don't really want to know the places where we're stepping out of line because when we see them, then, they, then we're uncomfortable and then we have to do something about it. But if we can somehow just go through life with blinders on, ignoring our own sin, and then maybe Jesus will come back before we really have to deal with, with the corruption in our own hearts. When we try to have Jesus as our Savior and not as our Lord, we are taking advantage of the grace of God and then in verse 4, Jude continues or finishes and says, these people are denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. We can believe the right things about Jesus in our minds while also denying him with our actions. Y'all, the first time that I was offered alcohol while underage was, and the first time that I was given an opportunity to smoke marijuana were from kids that I knew that went to church. I'm not sharing that to shame them or whatever. I'm sharing that because we, just because we sit next to one another in pews on Sunday morning doesn't mean we're all getting all things right. We need one another. We need each other. I need y'all to love me enough to tell me when I'm out of line. Just because someone sits in a pew of a church building does not mean they've let Jesus sit on the throne of their hearts. And we got to ask ourselves if this is us. This is part of that working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's not about living in fear that we might not be saved, but it's just us examining our own hearts and actions to make sure that we believe. Does what I'm doing and how I'm living line up with the things that I say I believe? Because of the many distortions of the gospel, 
Believers must know and defend the Christ-exalting faith that has been passed down. Jesus is the true Son of God who defeated death by going through it in our place and rose from the grave to give us life. And if you have not believed that, I urge you to believe that today. And if you have believed that, then remind yourself of it again and again and again. We're meant to hold on to that truth and to share it with the world around us. But we can't do that if we don't take the time to fully learn what we believe. You don't have to go to seminary to learn. Just get in God's word. Come to Sunday school. Come to gathering. Listen to good, Christ-exalting preaching. Y'all, we live in a really awesome time in history. But if we have access to good preaching and teaching anytime we want it, just make sure that you are actually checking the things these people are saying against God's word. Read good books. Talk to other believers about what they believe. This is a worthy thing to pursue. Um, I love what Rebecca McLaughlin says about this. She's a British PhD in theology, and she's also an apologist, and she just... She's talking about Christianity, and she says, In Jesus' world, we find connective tissue between the truths of science and morality. We find a basis for saying that all human beings are created equal and a deep call to love across diversity. We find a name for evil and a means of forgiveness. We find a vision of love that is so much deeper than our current hearts can hold and a true intimacy better than our weak bodies could ever experience. When I hear her talking about Christianity that way, that makes me want to know more about our faith. It makes me want to know more about God. It makes me want to know more about Jesus. It makes me want to know more about the gospel. We want to be growing together in knowledge, love, and obedience to God for his glory. So that we can understand the world. So that we can see clearly the love of Jesus. And then we can defend and pass on the faith that has been passed to us. So... I have a couple of of practical things, if you're interested in practical things, to take away with this. Uh, This question of what do you believe? I want to encourage you, if you've got time this week or if you can carve out time, try to come up with 10 non-negotiable things about our shared faith and the scriptural backing and support for those things. 10 things that are non-negotiable. I think through this practice... Hopefully you'll grow in your faith, but maybe also like me, you'll realize that sometimes we fight over things that aren't really as big of a deal as we make them out to be. There are certain things we need to fight very passionately for, and there are other things that we need to be more open-handed about. And there are way more than 10 things that are non-negotiable about our faith, but that's a good starting point if you've never done that. 10 things that are non-negotiable about our shared faith. Um, And then think through who you're listening to. Maybe you need to stop listening. You need to change the channel or just cut off access to some people because you know that they're not preaching the full gospel from God's word. And then maybe think through the sins that you have been justifying. It's not that big a deal. Everybody does it. Like, why does it even matter if I cheat on my taxes? The government's corrupt anyway. Whatever. We find ways to justify our sin all the time. But think through the things that you are are justifying and need to repent of. Uh, so I'm going to pray for us, then we'll have a time of response where you can sit where you are, you can sing, uh, you can pray, whatever you need to do, um, but let's pray. Father God, we, we love you and we need you. We ask that you help us because we are too easily deceived by others and by ourselves. <clears throat> God, we ask that you would help us to learn what we believe so that we can faithfully pass it on to the next generation. 
and then we can continue our part in your grand story of reconciling the world to yourself. We pray these things in your son's awesome and holy name. Amen. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.